Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, joined today with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz to talk about biblical manhood again. So this is the follow-up to our On Being a Man episode. Adam, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Doing fine. Uh, how is the weather in Fort Wayne? <laughs> I love this. It's okay. Colder than it was, not absolutely amazing as it was a few days ago, but but pretty good. And when you live in Fort Wayne, you know, you're kind of depressed until about this time for the past, you know, seven years or whatever. So the sun has come out. So that's nice. Well, I do believe Zesto's is open now. <laughs> Zesto's? Yeah, I think it's open. already open. Yeah. So go yeah. go get a Boston cooler. It might be a little chilly, but it's worth it. <laughs> My Norwegian wife taught me to eat ice cream year round. So that's where I'm at, man. <laughs> the only luxury one will allow himself. <laughs> that's right. Out here in the Illinois Plains, it's actually very, very pleasant uh, and you know, wonderful. I kind of wish I was outside right now instead of recording this, but far too windy to do both at the same time. <laughs> you get used to the dull, low roar of constant winds out here. It becomes, to, it becomes a comfort to you. Now, now when you don't hear the constant wow. roaring, you don't know what to do, you know? Wow. Yeah. yeah I'm Illinois, exaggerating a little bit. Illinois does things to a man. It does. It does. Is what it is, though. Sometimes it's got a, it's got a little bit of a Twilight Zone feeling, you know. Are we here forever? Can we ever get out? But do we ever really want to leave? I'm never sure if it's actually just pleasant prairie life out here or Stockholm syndrome. Either way, yeah. it is what it is. Feels right? good, right? Feels good. I'm not complaining at all. It, it's it's <laughs> it's great. Got my chickens. Got my family. A lot of a lot of greenery around. A lot of a lot of land that you can just turn them loose onto. So it's very good. Uh, speaking of turned loose on the prairie, Zelwyn is not here with us today. Right. He's migrating. He is He is migrating. He tells us his internet was out, and what he means is in the wigwam that he uses, it's more of an urt that he lives in when he's not dug into a hole in the earth somewhere. And so he is migrating across the plains. Once he gets to his spring home, uh, he will be back here joining us. Right. He He is genetically, but in a tr sort of trans-species way, related to the blue-eyed Mandan Indians um, who live in Earth Lodges. So that's what happens around this time each year, as Lewis and Clark chronicled for us. Zelwyn is actually in the journals of Lewis and Clark, if you only know where to look. Amen. Uh, he is not comfortable in plastered walls or in any kind of corrugated metal. It's very interesting. Must only be earthen for him. So if you see Zelwyn out in the wild, don't approach him. He's not dangerous. But don't approach him. If you must, though, be very deliberate in your movements. Yeah. And don't Just come from behind. Never, ever approach Zelwyn from behind. Well, all right. Now that we've got the safety warnings out of the way for those who might be traveling up to the Dakotas right now, we're going to kick off uh, the episode then. So this one's going to be a little bit different. We're going to take a, a different direction, um, at least as far as the subject matter goes. So we talked about in the previous episode 
what masculinity is, what it means to be a man, yeah. duties and so forth. Now we're going to talk a bit about the practical aspects, like how do you do it? Right. And uh, the first thing we're going to talk about, one of the most important lessons that a, that a Christian man can learn is when and how to say no. Adam? <laughs> yeah. And the reason it's one of the most important aspects is because it's very easy to have a divorce between teaching and practice or between what you understand the Bible to say and how you actually carry that out. And that's a that's a gap that we find in individuals, in families and congregations, in church bodies, where everything that is on paper is more or less good to go. But what mm-hmm. you actually do is a problem. So just the intro that, that I read from Genesis 16, you know, it's not like Sarai came in and like ordained a woman and then told Abram what to do. And he failed to say no. You know, it's you, you don't have to have bad stuff on the books for bad ideas to be carried out because the man doesn't understand how to say no or how to interact with his wife or any other woman. And so, you know, there's, there's no sort of like doctrinal predecessor, like Sarai holds a conference attacking the inspiration of scripture, (laughs) right? You know, it's just, Hey, I think this is a really good idea. Let's get some kids somehow. And like Adam, Abram fails to say no. Right. Yeah. And it leads to grave consequences. Uh, We, we see this today in many different ways, because it's hard for certain people to say no. Why might that be difficult for some? Part of it is because it's not really part of our training as, you know, let's say super neutrally male-bodied persons. In, <laughs> in, uh, that, could, that could apply to a middle school girls basketball team nowadays. Exactly, so. I know. Uh, it, it's, it's not part of our training in, in the current year Trash World America. Right. Our training is to be nice and depending on your race, actually to shut up and let everyone else talk first. So we don't we don't have a lot of training in being assertive in a way that doesn't come off as like overbearing or weird. And it's sort of a it's sort of obvious too when a guy learns biblical gender roles, but then kind of has no practical model or experience, and then just sort of decides to come off as what in previous generations would have been called boorish or churlish, right. because he doesn't know how to say no in a way that isn't intensely off-putting. Well, right. Uh, there's this kind of, there's masculinity as an identity <laughs> that needs right. that needs to kind of go yeah. away. Yeah. It's it's right. this window dressing type of masculinity, and they write books about it, and yeah. they have blogs and everything. There's this even kind of costume associated with it. Um, yeah, right. And it's very bizarre to me uh, because once you start peeling back the onion layers on these on these types of men who have these outward trappings, well, you'll see that in the home sometimes or in in the way they conduct business, they don't actually truly possess masculine qualities. They're merely wearing a, a man costume. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it's, you know, reflect on the fact that your great grandfather probably in any photos of him sitting down had his legs crossed in a way that you probably don't when you sit down. And yet your great grandfather probably had his household in order and lived in a place and time where that was supported and you don't. So the issue here <laughs> right. is is to be and not to seem. And the being has to do with the capacity to actually carry out 
also negative tasks that need to be accomplished for the good of the greater household. In the same sense that if Abram had simply said no, Hagar would not have suffered the way she will. Ishmael would not have existed, let alone suffered the way that he will. Right. And because Abram doesn't, you know, there they go. Can we think of some other biblical examples here? I mean, one that I alluded to is, is obviously our first parents, where Eve's exhortation to eat the fruit, which is just reported, we don't really, you know, we don't hear it directly, is met by Adam's silent acquiescence. Mm-hmm. And the idea that that is paradigmatic, as is everything else about Adam and Eve, should condition us to see that this is actually sort of a perennial problem. The transference of responsibility within a marriage and its very practical decisions from man to woman. So in the same sense that perennially the woman will, her desire will be for her husband. That is, she will want his authority. She will want to exercise his office. She will want to speak when she should be silent. Perennially, seemingly also, man will want to be silent when he should speak. He will want to abjure responsibility when he should exercise it. He will want to just let things take their course instead of, you know, ridding the garden of the snake. And so on and on, uh, we deal with this. Right. Even those who believe in uh, what's come to be called complementarianism. I don't like that term, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I have, obviously, <laughs> we endorse the biblical uh, roles for men and women on this podcast, but that whole movement even is, co- it's strange. So they say, they rightly say that men and women have differences, but then that really doesn't mean much in that broader movement. So right. you'll still have women exercising authority over a man outside of church in all kinds of different places. Yeah. Or, or, you know, there'll be some, you know, famous female Christian teacher who allegedly believes in the so-called complementarianism <laughs> yet. Yeah you know, her job exists. So, you know, so it's, it's easy to look at, to look at that and say, oh, well, yeah, you know, as we said in the beginning, well, yeah, they believe in biblical manhood and and womanhood, uh, biblical distinctions, but they don't really, it's more than just a theoretical. Right. And those differences will bear out no matter what happens. Right. And I think, you know, complementarianism is a really interesting example of something that, you know, is probably a little bit bigger as a term in evangelicalism than Lutheranism. But I think that Lutherans do a lot of the same thing with with the question of women's ordination that you sometimes get with complementarians, which is you think once you have established that the Bible says something that is countercultural, that is, women shouldn't be ordained, or men and women are fundamentally different by the creator's intention, that you're kind of done. Yeah. Rather than recognizing that the reason that you have to talk about this is because of something much larger, with many, many more symptoms that you should also talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think that you see it in you know, even the interpretation of the Bible, where the Bible becomes a resource, not for everyday life, but for simply buttressing certain assertions that you've made and leaving the rest aside. So, you know, we want to maintain that, you know, a man, if if a man desires the office, he desires a noble task, 
But when it comes to similar vocational assertions by St. Paul about women being saved through childbearing, people will even run to fairly esoteric ideas like that's actually about the Virgin Mary or something. (laughs) Right, right. In an order to escape the idea that a woman's biology is determinative, not just for her status in high school sports, it's also determinative for the course of her life, as is a man's. And so I think that one of the things that the church was able to do in maybe the past, I don't know, 50 years, but won't be able to do going forward, is to keep some semblance of biological determination for certain parts of life, like who stands at the altar, who's in the pulpit, yeah. but 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 leave it go for other parts. Well, you know, this sort of started once we, okay, so first of all, the Bible does affirm that insofar as justification is concerned, there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, yeah. okay? But the only distinction that we're comfortable now for the time being leaving is the male or female part. <laughs> <laughs> The other <laughs> distinctions there we're not so comfortable uh, yeah. with. So yeah. by I would argue that by erasing those other distinctions, that we are dangerously close to erasing the distinction between man and woman. Because we're yeah. all just people after all. Right. But you're not all just people. You're all individuals made by the creator and made in different ways. Uh, not And there are differences, frankly, um, in station and in tribe and culture. Yeah. And those things are not inconsequential. And they're also part of creation. And we need to recognize that as such. Yes, we all have common ancestors, the same shared ancestor with Adam and Eve, and of course, Noah and his clan. But at the same time, there are legitimate real differences between peoples. And that's okay. Yeah, you can talk. Yeah. We can't pretend that, it, that, they're, that they're not there. And it's really only kind of a current year white guy thing to even say that on either side of this debate. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because, yeah, because otherwise you can just say, you know, white people are different and they're awful. You know, that's yeah, okay. Exactly. So, yeah, right. right, right. And and if you go to the quote-unquote global south, another term I don't like. Um, <laughs> but like, I'm just saying people, uh, people a little more conscious of their ancestors in Latin America is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and, and much less uh, hung up on certain things. And, and, they, and they recognize this. Um, right. So the point is, is that God has made people different, and especially regarding male and female, these differences really uh, are going to bear out because it's it's built into creation. Women and men are fundamentally different for a reason, and so those things cannot be interchanged. I mean, I get it. You use a strong, independent woman who don't need no man. We we get it, you know, but you do. Uh, <laughs> And men need women too. Yeah. And and women, as so long as women are exercising their God-given vocations, and men are too. Uh, but I don't think that we can make them interchangeable. Right. Now, I understand in the culture we live in, everybody's out wor- working oftentimes, things like that. So that, but but even even at a practical level, even in the in the workforce, they're forced to recognize there are differences. That's why if you have a physically demanding job, the physical fitness standards are lower for women than men. Right. You know, things like that. It, it It's just going to be made obvious by nature eventually. Right. And I, I think that it was a luxury that 
several generations were able to have where they were still raised by their mothers. That is, their mothers were, you know, to quote Paul, working at home, but they could afford to kind of let life change without protest around them, as long as, say, in the case of Lutheranism, the woman didn't become a pastor. She could sort of be anything else. So you could have, you could still be sort of nurtured by a different way of life. You could still sort of keep church and especially worship the same, but your daughter could grow up, could grow up to be like a girl boss. And (laughs) I, I, one, one reason that I'm kind of more optimistic about future generations and even our generation is that we weren't nurtured by that life necessarily. And so you, you, you're able to better see the connections between Okay, girl boss at work affects church and family in these ways that are also negative. And girl boss hates being girl boss. So there must be more interconnection between these different realms of life than the immediately previous generation was able to see. Right. And we've mentioned that on the podcast a number of times before that we are not really inheritors of something great. (laughs) <laughs> because yes. yeah right we, yeah. we have simply not had that we have to we are we are rebuilding right and and sort of to flip this around too not just the girl boss thing but there's nothing noble in being a, a couch potato i was trying to think of something more incendiary to say to be honest with you but you know just lounge around on the couch just day after day video game after video game cheeto stained fingers constantly right that's not a goal that a man should aspire to either but it's it's bizarre the standards that we've had, and I really we got I, I don't know I'm I know I do know I we've got to really kind of contend against this uh, this kind of soy bodied you know you either have this waifish thing of a man or you've got this bloated thing of a man <laughs> you know right uh, yeah. that's the spectrum like I, I yeah. can't even put it into words what they are they're both chemically altered creatures either way right um, they they've allowed something not godly into them and they've become these amorphous things you don't want to be that and that's almost every man that you see in media which is usually like okay well that's just that's just hollywood okay but go out go outside drive through a college campus and look at what you see among the men today it's not a pretty sight (laughs) yeah and i think that it's important to realize that like the inability to say no which means that you're actually unable to lead in a family or a marriage or a church or anywhere else, the inability to say no is what your default is going to be in this place and time in the same way that your body being unhealthy is default in this place and time. Right. Exactly. And so, I mean, is there room for Christians to talk about disciplining the body? Do we, do we get that anywhere in the Bible? Yeah, I think, yeah, right. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's both the concept of fasting and prayer. And I think also the idea that we are actually God's temple yeah, should change in the same way that the understanding that you're baptized has something to do with your behavior. According to Romans six, the idea that you are God's temple, that the Holy Trinity himself dwells within you is not just a point to be made because you like the concept of theosis maybe and are trying to appropriate <laughs> it. It's it's a point to be made practically about how you treat what God has given you. So in the same sense that you wouldn't at the end of your life burn God's temple with fire because it's cheaper. Similarly, during your life, you would not deface God's temple by treating it as if it were, you know, sort of like a potato chip bag. Uh, right. useful for a time and then crumple it up and throw it away. 
Right. And, you know, while we're on this point uh, with a few minutes left, you know, it's, it's, in, it's an interesting phenomenon where men will rightly contend that our churches should be beautiful for the sake of the glory of God and to honor God. Right. And they have no problem with that. But then it becomes the height of legalism to say that the temple of God made <laughs> the temple uh, of your body right. made by God should not be treated with similar reverence and respect. Right. Why not? Why not both? Why not both? Exactly. I don't know. I guess it's easier to buy a tabernacle, Adam. Yeah, it, for sure. It's a, it's a lot easier than exercising 10 minutes a day. <laughs> well, hey, we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking about manhood and, well, women too. We're covering a lot of bases here. So, Adam, let's talk a little bit more about authority before we move on. Yeah, and authority is a word that's a little hard for people to handle because in English we have this distinction available to us, but not in many languages, including Greek and Hebrew, between authority and power. And a lot of times when I think right. people are hearing authority, what they're actually hearing in English is I want power or I'm talking about who should have power. And that sounds that sounds like a power grab. That sounds like you're just trying to pull rank on somebody. But if you look at it biblically, you're looking at not only languages in which the distinction doesn't exist, but also languages in which it's showing you that authority is for building up. In the same sense that Paul says that his apostolic authority is to build up and not to tear down, just so is God's authority over man and man's authority over woman is there for building up and not for tearing down. And it doesn't mean that you never say no, but it means that your intention always, as it is with a preacher of the gospel, even where excommunication has to be exercised, the purpose of no is so that eventually this will redound to the other person's good over whom you have authority. This is by God's design. Therefore, it will work better if we just follow it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. But people have a hard time believing that, I think, because partly because of the fact that we are unaccustomed to its fruitful exercise. I mean, if you if you are born in the United States after Roe v. Wade, your mother legally could have killed you without your father's consent. So that's right. where we're at. So the idea yeah. that there would be fruitful exercise of male authority is for a lot of people 
just kind of an unknown, a scary unknown. And we understand that that's part of why we're doing these episodes in particular. Sure. And it's, it's a thing we go back back here a lot. Um, this is, once again, why civic nationalism just won't work. <laughs> you have to build upon, you have to build a society, if you're going to have one, on a firm foundation. And so that firm foundation, yes, is the quote-unquote doctrine of Scripture, but it's also the administration of Scripture. It's what, yeah, right. it's, it's the yeah. better way that Scripture shows us how to order everything. And if these principles work ordering our families, then they certainly work to order our governments in the same way. I mean, we understand honor thy father and thy mother to apply much more broadly than just the household. Right. And so right. the principles we're talking about today are also applied more broadly. Right. And the, the, the reason that we can make that jump out of the fourth commandment into all of public life is precisely because the principles and their exercise begin in the family. The nation begins inside the family group. Right. The nation doesn't precede or sit over top of the family group. And the health of the nation and of the government and of all of public life is dependent on the family group. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why we contend for it. You can contend for it on principle, but there are also very practical reasons to contend for it. Yes, because it's what the Bible says is enough, but why does the Bible say it that way? Um, that's the powerful argument there. Right. And we, we sometimes forget to make that argument, you know, somewhat. Right. So, all right. Anything else on uh, authority before we move on? No, I, I mean, I think the, the connection here to where we're going is that in order to exercise authority, your your mind and your body have to be in a certain state. And you know this if you've ever, you know, let's say you got promoted and maybe your company moved you to a different location. So, you're at a higher pay grade. Now you have people under you, but you're not accustomed to exercising authority. And it's going to come awkwardly at first. I mean, I tell this to people when I get them ready for marriage. Here are the biblical roles. It will serve you well to play these roles, but you have to learn how to play these roles. It doesn't come naturally. And that goes for you both sort of mentally, but also physically. Certainly. And so let's, we talked, um, see, what was it, two weeks ago? We had the preparedness episode and yeah. touched on some of these things too. Let's talk a little bit about physical preparation then. Yeah, uh, because you're not really, I mean, sometimes the doctrine of scripture on who mankind is will be presented as dualism, but there's something a little unfair about that and that we're not, we don't think of ourselves scripturally as sort of a consciousness just as a sort of ghost within a, you know, a meat shell. We are mind and body interconnected. And if the body is unhealthy, that will have very real effects on the mind and vice versa. But as you mentioned in the last segment, because of the warping of, men, of really everybody's body due to our industrialized food system, but in, in this regard, for today's purposes, men's bodies, because of that warping due to any number of factors, you know, you're much better qualified to talk about than I am. Men, are, that actually makes you less able to be who you were created to be than if you were, than if your body were healthy, either by virtue of what you take in or of how you exercise that body or both. So you mentioned... Uh, you know, just as an aside, like working out 10 minutes a day, some kind of physical activity. Yeah. Uh, why is even that important? 
because it's, it, it has effects on your mind and your spirits and especially, I think, your energy that is a little hard to observe from the Bible because people in the Bible are living in a pre-industrialized agricultural situation, whether they are pastoralists or whether they are farmers, whatever their occupation, they're getting more sunlight more physical activity on a daily basis than practically anybody either on this call or listening to this podcast does. And so because of that, the Bible usually doesn't address these things. I mean, fat people, for instance, are remarkable in the Bible, right? The episode, the episode between Ehud and Eglon is notable <laughs> right, because right. because of the 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 obesity the rarity, yeah. yeah the rarity of obesity is only possible for a king yeah that's true yeah. and, i mean and yeah. th- but that that's that's even up into the modern era i mean yeah right henry the 8th right fat guy <laughs> why is he known for being fat that shouldn't impress us but it impressed them then right yeah I mean, when when William Howard Taft was, you know, sort of trundling around, everybody was like, wow, you never see this. Right. Pick any random group photo from like the mid 70s. (laughs) Everybody's in shape. I know. Yeah, it's not been that long ago. I know. It's a bit dehumanizing. Much as the mask is is dehumanizing. um, (laughs) The food that we are fed is somewhat dehumanizing um, because it, it isn't wholesome. We need to to be careful what we put into our bodies. Now, we understand that gluttony is bad, and we understand, I hope, that drunkenness is bad and other things like that. Well, this is kind of a form of that because we need to really be careful about what we we take in. A lot of, like you said, the connection between uh, the mind and the body, the mental and physical well-being, the the problem is people will – well, now we're living in a time where what we're saying is very controversial. Right. You know, because it's offensive or whatever. But as – as your body deteriorates, as you abuse it through just shoveling these bad things into you, your mind deteriorates too. And then, okay, so you go from the industrialized food sector with its high fructose corn syrup and these overprocessed foods. Okay, you, you suffer all these maladies from it. And then you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor, like, I am depressed or I'm anxious all the time. I'm stressed out all the time. Right. And what is the first thing that the doctor does? Well, here's this pill. Go take it. You'll feel better. We are chemically altered all the time now, and we don't even realize it. And it's not healthy. Um, Not that certain people don't need these kinds of of medications or anything like that, but it has to be overprescribed. And okay, if there is an epidemic of depression, anxiety, stress, are there not more holistic, at least more God-pleasing ways to go about it first? And honestly, sunlight, prayer... (laughs) The Bible, these things actually do legitimately help. Right. Eating well actually helps. And guess what? You're not going to be able to get as much sunlight as you need today. Well, if we're going to be happy about advances in manufacturing, you can buy supplements. You can take vitamins if you need to. And if you don't like swallowing big pills, just take a handful of Flintstones or something. You'll, you know, um, yeah. I, I told Adam in between the break, I didn't really want to get off on this tangent, but. Uh, you know, desiccated beef liver supplements um, are just, they're just good for you. Yeah. I mean, now we actually, we actually have beef supplements that you can take. Sounds like soil and green. That's not really what it is. And, but the, but the point is the connection between like 
like, okay, now I'm sounding kind of crazy, right? Why would a beef liver pill be so beneficial? Well, because it gives you nutrients that an older diet had built into it because of what they ate that you lack now because you don't eat the same things that they did. Right. And and we, we have been telling you that we're going to give you preaching resources and stuff like that, but we're also going to have a line of supplements. That's the big reveal for today. <laughs> right. Um, It'll be the uh, word fitly male vitality. We're going to work on that. <laughs> we're going to sell it. <laughs> but no, seriously, I mean, what what is at what is at the bottom of of bodily problems, of physical problems, of medical problems are spiritual realities such Absolutely. as an inability to control yourself or an inability to say no to this things in this part of your life that makes you unable to say no in this other part of your life. Right, it's it's something having a mastery over you. Right. You know, and that's not a good place to find yourself. And we cannot separate the spiritual from the physical. The Bible, I mean, even when, even look at a case like in the Bible, like demonic possession. How is that always manifest? It's a spiritual malady, but with grave physical implications. Right. And so, all right, well, let's put a positive on it. What are the what are the physical ramifications of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you? The, these are the questions we should ask. Yeah, and I think that one reason that it's hard to answer questions like that is because the spiritual, the interconnection between spiritual and physical is usually most obvious in the Old Testament, which is precisely the part of the Bible that very few even church-growing Christians are well acquainted with. So if I don't know stories about the foolishness of, you know, Nabal, or I don't know stories about how David fared well and Saul fared ill, um, sure. including that, that Saul was afflicted by an evil spirit in connection with his rejection of the Lord's commandment, or I don't know what's in Proverbs, Yeah, then there's a lot about daily life in God's creation as part of God's creation as male or Jew or Gentile or slave or free there's a lot about that that I'm just kind of flying blind, even yeah. though scripture is completely sufficient, not only for my faith, but also for my life. Sometimes people will go, well, the Bible is not meant to be just an instruct or not, is not meant to be an instruction manual. Yeah, it is. It's not only that, <laughs> right? but it is. I mean, please, please walk up to Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter seven and say, well, the Bible's not in an instruction manual, Jesus. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, Jesus better, seems to think it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bring that up to him on the last day. See how that works out for you. <laughs> Lord, Lord, did we not claim <laughs> that the third use of the law was irrelevant in your name? In your name. Yeah. Right. Lord, did we not assume that the gospel predominated? Lord, did we not pretend that we couldn't <laughs> preach the way we wanted to? Right. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and please, third third function, please, so that we oh, don't yeah. get yes. we, we don't need more letters. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the more accurate version of the ancient Hebrew from which the uh, third use is translated. There it is. So, <laughs> so, right, it's it's these it's these silly sayings that lead to us thinking things like that, and. I know like like it's cool to hate the law but but it's it's really not going to be cool the way that's going <laughs> to bear out in your life there to hate the words of God so to speak and uh and it, it, so, and it, it's a luxury like we yeah. talked about with generations it's a luxury to despise God's law in certain parts of your life but if your wife cheats on you you Bingo. feel that the law is real exactly you, 
you know it because you were made to know it. Absolutely. And, you know, also the sting of uh, being mocked for these positions is probably good for you, too. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you have to you need you need to get pushed a little bit. That's OK. It, it, it makes us it makes us all better. So mind and body unified, and I hate saying things like that, mind and body, because it sounds so new age, but it, it isn't, obviously. Uh, we don't endorse crystals or anything like that. Um, or maybe you do. I don't. Personally. <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> right. I mean, seer stones, yes. Yeah. Scrying stones, yeah. Wholesome, yeah, yeah who, wouldn't, who wouldn't do that? Obviously. But, right. So, all right. So mind and body united. Let's talk a little bit in the last few minutes of this segment about how to gain strength. Yeah. Part of it is going to begin with spiritual things and spiritual discipline. This is why Lent should be a sort of preseason for the Christian in the sense that he's working especially hard. It's, it's, it's helpful to focus on gaining strength. And part of the power of fasting and of prayer, as also of giving away money rather than hoarding it, which is our natural instinct, is to train your will as well as your emotions uh, and to attune them with the self-denial that actually produces strength. And this is why when Paul is talking about change in the Christian life, and don't ever say that you're weak on sanctification, uh, an athlete does not boast in his weakness, but he is honest about his weaknesses. So Paul talks about beating his body and disciplining it all in the context of his life mission as an apostle in 1 Corinthians. And he does that saying, look, this is not my boast, but it is my job to be strong. And I have to train myself to be strong, lest after preaching this gospel to others, I should be disqualified when my weaknesses gain mastery over me. Right. The Christian life is a life of struggle and fighting. And, but these are things that men actually need, too. Right. Um, this is how we become better men through right. the struggle. Uh, there is virtue in that struggle and in that fight. I mean, the story of Jacob wrestling with God, after all. Uh, there's one. Um, yeah. We want to prevail. We want to win. Right. It's not Christian to say, you know, it's not, I was about to say it's not American, but that too, but it's not Christian to want to lose. No. And, 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 and this is a religion where we say that we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors, right? More than conquerors. So that means that boasting about how weak and awful I am is foolish because my Jesus is strong and mighty. Right. He is the king of kings. He is going to bring all of his enemies under his feet. Okay. He is going to tread down Satan. It is a physical, a masculine, and a powerful savior that we have. Right. And in the next segment, we're actually going to talk a bit more about the manhood of, of or Christ's uh, masculinity, manhood in Christ's image. And so, but before that, yeah, we don't want to be defeatists. We, and it's more than just pessimism. I mean, it's this constant, well, we're always going to lose. Right. Like that's, that's a little feminine. And I, and I think it's built, it is built on a lack of effort because you know that, and, and just, I mean, for the listener, I would say start wherever you need to start because yeah. nothing here is about being absolutely better at something than anyone else. You need right. to be good for your calling in life. And start wherever, like, so if walking up and down a flight of stairs without getting out of breath is where you need to start, start there. 
Absolutely. There's no shame in effort. There is only shame in acceptance and and enjoyment, slothful enjoyment of weakness. And on that end, we don't shame our brothers who are trying and failing. No, no, not at all. It's it's kind of like gym bros. Gym bros can be very, very cool. They're not meant to like ridicule the guy who doesn't know the machines work. You know, the the Chad in the gym who's worth his salt is going to take the guy and show him the ropes. Right. Show them how things work. Well, that's how the Christian should be, too. We should never, ever ridicule someone who stumbles while he's running the race. We right. can help him get back up, right. encourage him to keep going, to keep lifting, to keep moving forward. Right. Yeah, be- because I think growth in manhood goes along with growth in brotherhood. Right. Yeah. And while we might uh, tease and even haze one another, ultimately, we we chastise even one another so that we can be better. Right. That's how men are. Uh, that's why male friendships and female friendships quite different. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. And and everybody knows what you're saying there. Right. Men know how to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Any any uh, final words here this segment on uh, personal development? I think just words of encouragement, because if we have all inherited a giant mess, we're all trying to get out of a giant mess. And that means that it's a long road for all of us. But I want to just encourage you to keep going and keep plotting. And we do episodes like this because we know it's hard. Uh, if it weren't hard, we wouldn't talk about it. We don't have any episodes about, you know, getting your driver's license renewed. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, hey, we're up to our second break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking about masculinity. We're going to shift gears a little bit now and focus upon the masculinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Adam? Yeah, the reason to do that is because Jesus is not only a gift in everything that he is and does for us, he's also an exemplar. And a lot of the mentions throughout the New Testament of the life and ministry of Jesus, think of Philippians chapter 2, for example, are places that are uh, descriptions of Jesus's life and work for us on our behalf, set within a larger discussion of how we should be. So Paul does that in Philippians 2, in recounting how Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's set within an exhortation to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Very similar in 1 Corinthians, really 8, all the way through the beginning of 11, 
where Paul is also an exemplar, but Paul is imitating Jesus. So when we look at how Jesus is in the Gospels, especially how he conducts himself, uh, what he does, how he responds to people, how he handles questions. These are all exemplary for us. And I think some of the things that we'll find in there are going to be a little bit surprising. The one that is usually brought up in connection with masculinity in in the context of sort of, you know, church plants somewhere in like Arkansas that uh, are built around like MMA rings, you know, (laughs) Um, uh, is Jesus whipping the money changers out of the temple. And that's, that's completely fine. And and we can talk about that. But I think, I I think this is kind of a broader point about how Jesus conducts himself and, and how he is with people than just like, it's okay to be angry sometimes. Right. Although now we are told it's not okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Right. Yeah. You can't even do that anymore. Uh, Yeah. uh, So the way Jesus even answers people's questions, for example, is very masculine. He will tell people, no, he will rebuke them when he needs to, but he'll also have dad talks with them too. Yeah. 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 That's no, that's a, that's a good way to think about it because especially you can see that he handles different people differently. So he doesn't, he's not dominated by the form of the question. He responds in view of what would actually be good for the person he's talking to. Yeah, exactly. He exercises discernment as any man should. And uh, he uses his words wisely. Yeah. I mean, that obviously he's divine. So you would think he would know what to say and he does, but that's still a lesson for us. Uh, It's kind of become a cliche to talk about popular depictions of Jesus, but at least since the Renaissance, we've had a very effeminate depiction of Jesus Christ in art. And that has gone all the way up into the modern era in most film and television portrayals too. Um, Although in the early days, it wasn't like that. But if you look at something like uh, Zafrelli's Jesus of Nazareth miniseries, Robert Powell's uh, depiction of Jesus has become kind of the standard pop culture representation, Mm. uh, whether we like that or not. And he's a little bit thin, a little frail, right? Yeah. yeah. Great performance, great performance. And I don't think you can really say he's effeminate as far as his performance goes, but just the image of this very feminine featured Jesus comes up a lot in many different mediums. And certain sectors have so emphasized certain aspects about Jesus or they confuse his humility with some kind of weakness. Right. Yeah. You know, that that Jesus as a powerful masculine figure is sometimes lost on some people. Right. And if you think about the adjective Christ-like, which is yeah. pretty much always used to shame someone for being angry or straightforward or something, Christ-like is the reason it doesn't match up with Jesus's actual behavior is because it's a presumption about how how nice Jesus is and how you're not being nice. And even right. just the the idea that manhood is constituted, masculinity is constituted by being nice is not only off in the case of Jesus, it's off in the case of every man. Yeah. And on the flip side, manhood is not simply being boorish either. Right. Which we discussed in previous uh, segments. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're not yeah. you're not like beating people out of a building for high purposes every single day, you know, generally. Exactly. Right. Generally. Yeah. And, you, and you're not, you know, degenerating yourself to the point of flinging poo or whatever. Right. At your opponents, that sort of thing. Uh, we can we can find a middle way. I don't even want to say middle way. It's just different situations require different responses. 
So let's talk a little bit more about Jesus specifically. Yeah. So the phrase you used earlier, dad talk is, is interesting when you look at, especially the questions of the disciples, right? So when James and John ask to sit on Jesus's right and left, or when you see, you know, just sort of misguided or confused assertions by the disciples, Jesus usually does not just sternly rebuke them. He will, Mm -hmm. in the case where Peter opposes Jesus's crucifixion, really, in Matthew 16. That's when he is denominated as Satan. But usually he will he will tell them clearly, uh, you know, you do not know what you ask, but he won't just slap them down. Right. With Jesus, there is both a paternal and a fraternal concern that he shows yeah, for his people. Right, right. In the form of teaching, but also I would I would argue, even in the case of provisions, a miracle like the feeding of the 5,000, for example. You know, is it primarily a demonstration of his power? Certainly. But it stems from a paternal, for lack of a better word, concern right. that he has for the people there who are following him and who are hungry. Right. Now, now what is more masculine than that to, to provide food? Right. And to provide sustenance, that kind of protection. And it's, it's interesting that he, that, that before he works the miracle, he looks at them and they're like sheep without a shepherd and yeah. exhorts the disciples to provide for them that, that the disciples do this, flight from responsibility that we talked about in the first segment, they attempt it. And Jesus yeah. says, you give them something to eat. Right. So I, and I think paternal and fraternal together is, is just a really great way of putting it because his relationship to people is sometimes a relationship of a superior to an inferior. And sometimes, especially where it's going to be fraternal, that is that he's going to share a certain kind of a life with his disciples, which includes not just the 12, but also us, right? He, he, he doesn't erase the gap between what he knows about life and what we can know. So he doesn't tell James and John, you, yeah, you, you know exactly what you're getting into. Go at, go for it, buddy. He says, you do not know what you ask. On the other hand, he doesn't say, and you're idiots and you're never going to figure it out. And you know, <laughs> right. he's encouraging, right. even when it's actually a future of suffering that they're going to share with him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also important to figure out that in the fraternal aspect of it, Jesus is always the elder brother. He's always the big brother here. Right. Um, which again, uh, th- there's a lost masculine figure in our culture too. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the idea that that man that that masculinity cannot really exist outside of these male only relationships. That that's how I learn how to be. And I think part of the school that the disciples are going through is not a certain, let's say, like academic course. Like they have to, you know, they have to learn how to read Isaiah and they have to learn how to read, you know, the Pentateuch and stuff like that. That's all that's all probably part of it, right? I mean, he's explaining the scriptures to them even after the resurrection. But I think that the school that the disciples enter into and the reason that the disciples are exemplary for us, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, is because they're entering into a school of a way, right? That's how the Christians actually describe themselves, a way which is Christ's. And that way for men is more specifically exemplified because Jesus is a man. And 
that way involves not only how you respond to younger men and lead them and guide them, but also how you respond to challenges. I mean, how would you say Jesus handles challenges to his authority, for instance? You know, it's it's interesting because he doesn't always insist upon it. Yeah. You know, it just is. And I think that that's a defining masculine characteristic that we forget. We don't always have to insist upon ourselves or insist upon things. Um, oftentimes, Jesus presents it as just simply obvious. Right. And that's a that's a game theory-wise something to learn, right? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, right. just to say, my kingdom is this, or it is as you say, right. those sorts of things. Now, where is his authority most specifically demonstrated? In the forgiveness of sins. And so he does objectively demonstrate that too. He projects authority and then demonstrates it and doesn't just say, well, let's try to compromise here. What is easier to say? Rise, get up and walk or your sins or your sins are forgiven or rise, get up and walk. So it's demonstrated explicitly, but it's also implicitly there just in how he conducts himself. Right. Um, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think I think just the idea of not insisting is that Jesus is not, let's say, like a credentialist, Bingo. even where yeah. he really could have been. I mean, like I'm- Jesus doesn't pull out a diploma of vocation. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Or, or uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and and you realize this if you think about like the phrase like, "I'm your father." You know, like if you have to say what your authority is, yeah. It's already slipping away, if not gone. Yeah, absolutely. Because how people react to your authority is really the true measure of what authority you have. Yeah, right. That's right. why the Jews right. seek to to kill Jesus, because they actually do recognize what he's saying. They might not agree with it, but they do recognize what he appears to be. Right. And they don't like yeah. it. He, he is a political threat to them. So even if they don't recognize his divine authority, they certainly recognize temporal authority he's carrying at that time or potential. And so they get that. But yeah, having to insist upon it. I'm your dad. Listen to me. Yeah. You're already in bad shape there. <laughs> your daughter's got the car key. She's running out the doors. It's too late, bro. <laughs> right. Shouldn't have let right. her get that, that uh, foot tattoo. Right. <laughs> something, something that I I've thought about, in connection with Jesus's masculinity is are the times when and where Jesus is silent Mm -hmm. or, or largely silent, right? Not, um, not just like stubbornly mute, but, but largely he's not giving a discourse right? or, or, or not just exhaustively answering everything. Right. He's not, he is, he is often laconic in his speech, which, you know, is specifically about how the Spartans don't blather on as much as the Athenians. That's laconic. And so he will respond briefly, clearly, but briefly. Where he does teach at length, his way of speaking is often aphoristic. That is, it becomes much clearer what the significance is later on, which is also how James talks. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of the beauty of the book of James. But I'm thinking about this in connection with Joseph, who is Jesus's human exemplar for masculinity growing up. And I I love this. Uh, it's a it's a pre-Raphaelite painting. I think it's by Hunt of uh, a youthful Jesus working in the shop with Joseph, mm-hmm. and because uh, it shows you something that that you see if you can trace it. That there are certain ways of being 
especially silence, a preference for silent action over talkative inaction that is both Joseph's very obviously in Matthew's gospel, but is also Jesus's. So even though Jesus has to preach, I came out to preach, right? Even though he has to preach, that's not mostly what he's doing. There's a mission that is bigger than talking that he has to accomplish. And when that mission is being accomplished, it's not even like people would understand what's going on, even if he provided an explanation, right? Right. I mean, right. In, in fact, they patently misunderstand him. Yeah. And sometimes he speaks in ways to obscure things, to to hide things from people too, right? which is also a kind of a dad thing. Not like you're hiding <laughs> things from your kid, but you do keep things from them sometimes until yeah, the right do, time. They don't understand, right? Yeah. And they can't right now. Exactly. Yeah. And we we kind of see the folly of this when uh, it's like if you're catechizing your very young children and then you want to get into the minutia of like how the Trinity operates with them yeah, or, 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 or hypostasis or something like that. Right. And it's like, weren't you getting it? You're, you're four. <laughs> you know, uh, those sorts of things. Like we forget that this is the, this is the other side of discernment, how to teach, you know, there's discernment in that. Yeah. How, when, and what to teach. It's So discernment for the man is not just simply when to shut up and when not to. It's uh, what to say, who you're saying it to, as you said earlier, who your audience is. You know, Jesus exemplifies this. And I hope that, we, that we're able here to, to show Jesus as an exemplar better than how he's presented popularly. You know, not, as we said, it's kind of the beginning of this, you know, just being nice. There's a, do you remember the what would Jesus do bracelets? I do. Those still around? I don't know if they're still around. I don't know. I that, that feels like a hundred years ago. Yeah, but I was well, around. It was. Then, so. it was. Yeah, yeah. But it was the same idea, and it just degenerated into uh, basically Jesus would either be the cool kid or the guy mm-hmm. who gets pushed around. Right. Right. Because yeah. on the other side of that, the, there's the nice Jesus. But then you also have affirming Jesus for these people right where it's well you know jesus ate with uh prostitutes and thieves you gotta <laughs> call them to repentance <laughs> you know and we get this all the time though jesus <laughs> jesus was eating with the uh with the thruple from san francisco and affirming their life choices yeah right, exactly jesus uh, big, big into the castro look <laughs> you know we can't we can't do that voice anymore that's uh that's outlawed now i think that's a hate crime <laughs> Yeah, probably. Uh, I felt, I felt, yeah, I felt some hate crimes being committed just now. (laughs) There's somebody feels aggressed somewhere. (laughs) That's how we know we're doing our job. No, it just, but it really is that bad. And, and we, we're using a little bit of hyperbole here, but only a little bit, even otherwise confessional people fall into this too. And to the point of, you can't, they would say you cannot speak forcefully because it's not Christ-like. Right. Or, you know, or or some, or my favorite, they'll try out the eighth commandment, those kinds of things where, uh, you know, Jesus can be rather pointed. He can also be, of course, very gentle too. There's time for both. We get sort of stuck in the mode between uh, an angry Jesus and gentle Jesus. Like he's always both, or he's, he's never, you know, he's either one or the other. Yeah. And, you know, you just, there's a time to, to be pointed. There is a time to be gentle. There's a time to listen, a time to speak. 
Yeah, and I th- I think that 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 prayer for wisdom that James talks about is is a prayer for not only wisdom about you know how do I manage this or that in my life, but also how should I be? Maybe pr- probably primarily how should I be? And Jesus possessing all wisdom, you know, being himself wisdom, knows that you're not going to handle the you know Canaanite woman in the same way that you handle Peter silently rebuking you, but everyone can see that he's, you know, chewing you out. So the idea that you would behave toward people respective to their person and their situation is generally the better part of wisdom, which is why there is a time for war. And there's also a time for peace. You're not always at war and you're not always at peace with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. You know, with that said, with all the James talk we've done this uh, this segment, maybe we should just do a James episode and break the Lutheran internet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we probably should. I think part of the reason it's underestimated is because it's it is it is set up in the aphoristic, somewhat disconnected but extremely profitable way that that what gets called wisdom literature in the Old Testament is. And so like the Sermon on the Mount, but also like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you're going to keep coming back to it and seeing the the poignancy of what is said so briefly, but then works out at such great length and profit in your life. And that is also something where masculinity is not, you know, sort of a mask that you can put on and then mm-hmm. take off again. It's something in which I think you have to grow and above all things, the thing that James is counseling for growth and wisdom under trial is patience. Right, right. And it, absolutely something you have to grow into. As we said earlier in the episode, it's not just a costume that you can put on. Right. And I don't think it's something you can necessarily fake until you make it. Right. You know, throw on a fake beard and uh, oil it up and whatever. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Speaking of nothing in particular, no cultural threats. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it, it is something that uh, must be cultivated, must be worked toward. And, and as we said, encourage one another as we do it. And on the flip side, you know, we should encourage women to be to be women, too, yeah. in the biblical sense of the word. Right. So any any last thoughts as we close out this episode? No, I mean, I I hope it was profitable, encouraging uh, to anybody who's listening, whether you are a man or you will one day be one or you're raising boys. I hope it's helpful and profitable because like we said earlier, this is not something that we're necessarily inheriting, uh, most of us. This is something that we're sort of working on reconstructing and reclaiming. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, Adam. Thank you. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.